Don't you open your Bibles tonight to Romans chapter 11. And as you do so, let me make a few comments before we start. These chapters are substantially about the doctrine of election. Now, the biblical doctrine of election is about more than personal, individual redemption. Uh, Properly understood, election is a view of how God works in history for his own glory and for the redemption of the world. In fact, without that larger biblical perspective on election as the way God unfolds his saving work for the whole world, his personal election of individuals begins to look a lot more like an arbitrary thing on God's part. As um, James Montgomery Boyce once commented, he said, it would be as though God chose one and not another, like a child plucking petals from a daisy. I love you. I love you not. I love you. I love you not. But election is not that simple or that unappealing, I'm glad to say. Personal election happens only in the Bible in a relationship to corporate election, the election of a whole people to be in covenant with God. And we're going to see that issue right off the bat in our reading tonight. So let's turn to Romans chapter 11. I'll be beginning with verse 11. And if you're reading along in your own or your pew Bible, you'll find this on page 946. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. 
provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your providence in restoring power to our building just moments before our, just minutes before our service. We thank you for restoring light to this room. But now, Father, we pray for an inward illumination by your Spirit. Give us light, O Lord, that in your light we might see light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what are we to think of the Jews? You you can't really be a fully functioning person in this world without asking that question. Even if you're not religious at all, there are all kinds of social, historical, political, and personal matters that hang on the question to that the answer to that central question what do you think of the jews the ancient roman government officially recognized the jewish religion yet it still labeled them as secta nefaria a nefarious sect the famous historian arnold toynbee classified israel as a fossil civilization Yet that fossil civilization has in some ways made the modern world possible as over 200 of the 900 or so Nobel Prizes have been given to Jewish folk. Interestingly, by the way, just as an aside, Robert Oppenheimer was not one of those who won a prize, though he was born to Jewish parents. So what are we to make of the Jews. Many of our evangelical brethren have given the wrong answer to that question in recent years and decades. But most Reformed folk do not attach huge end times significance to the formation of the modern political state of Israel. Yet still, and and this is the key, That does not mean Jews as a people are insignificant to the end times and the consummation of history in the new heavens and the new earth. Some of that significance we're going to see tonight. And some we'll see next Sunday evening as we close out this great 11th chapter of Romans. So let's look at our passage. The Apostle Paul himself a Jew and steeped in its promises and patriarchal heritage. Paul begins our section this evening with a question about his Jewish kinfolk. So I ask, he says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, he says. Did the Jews stumble 
in order that they might fall. Recently, Nancy and I went to visit our son and his family in Raleigh, and they have built a new room, apartment, kind of above the garage, and there's this uh, step in the middle of the room, an architectural step, goes up one foot or so, and the whole thing is carpeted with this new Berber carpet. So I was told when I went there, don't take any liquids upstairs. But of course I did, because I had to have my morning coffee. So I had a hot cup of coffee, and I'm very aware that, that I need to not spill this coffee on that Berber carpet. So I'm just focused on the coffee, and of course, being so focused on it, I never saw that step coming. And I slammed into that step with my feet, totally didn't see it coming, and that started a stumbling process that took about three seconds and about 12 feet, and that cup got within a foot of the ground, but it never touched the ground. But the coffee went everywhere. (laughs) But it didn't touch the ground. Though I stumbled, I did not fall quite. And what Paul is asking here is, did the Jews stumble in their substantial rejection of Jesus as Messiah in such a way that they would fall away forever from God? Was this, was this all God's way of cutting them off once and for all? No is the resounding answer. By no means, it's emphatic in the Greek. It's not a fall that undoes God's election of Israel. I think this is one time that the New International Version translation gets the sense of the verse right. They say, uh, translate it this way. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. They did not fall beyond recovery. Paul is saying that when it comes to the Jews, all is not lost. God has not handed the fate of the Jews as a people in the great sweep of history over to final destruction. God has not abandoned his spiritual promises to the Jews despite the current, and by current I mean the first century, but really running to this century, the Jewish rejection of their Messiah. In other words, simply put, God is not done with them yet. In fact, Paul sees a a vastly more redemptive purpose in it all. He writes uh, in the rest of verse 11, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. My friends, this is one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible, and it forms part of a biblical view of history. God is using sin and human failing, of which there is not a short supply, to advance salvation. God uses sin sinlessly. That shouldn't surprise us. When we know that his son, Christ Jesus, saved us through that darkest of instrumentalities, the cross, that most disastrous of human sins, Christ's own personal betrayal and crucifixion. What Paul is saying here is that Jewish rejectionism of his day compelled the early church to take the gospel more and more outside the bounds of Jerusalem and Judea. 
and into the Gentile world, even to the ends of it. This was especially true after the great providential destruction of Jerusalem, which many Christians escaped, taking their gospel with them elsewhere. Now, this is an historical fact. The Jews' rejection of Jesus led to the spread of his gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles, both far and wide. But then how does that offer hope back to the Jews? Are they not under judgment for their rejection of Jesus? Oh, yes. Jerusalem was indeed, and individual Jews certainly are under judgment. And we must not make the mistake so many dispensational churches make in saying that Christ denying Judaism is saving. It is not saving. It was not saving in the first century. It is not saving now. But still, there is a deeper purpose at work in all of this. For by rejecting Jesus, they, I'm speaking of the Jewish rejectionists now, had spread Jesus to the nations, which one day they will become jealous of, Paul says, and seek to have what we now have. And then this incredible verse follows. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is one of those, especially the first two-thirds of this sentence, is one of those Pauline uh, sentence structures that says two things in order to say one thing. Paul writes, if the Jews trespass means riches for the world, well, what is the world? It's the nations, it's the Gentiles. Then Paul says, if the Jews' failure means riches for the Gentiles, same exact meaning, it's just a different way of saying it. You know, sometimes we say something twice in order to emphasize the point. I'm fascinated by speech patterns, and I've noticed that a, a I think it was a southern, typically southern expressions now becoming nationalized. Uh, you know, instead of just saying uh, "thank you," we say "thank you." I really appreciate it. Same exact thing. Same exact sentiment. We're so nice, we say it twice. But it's about emphasizing. So by this repetition Paul is using here, he's really stressing that Israel's sin has led to the world, that is to the Gentile salvation in Jesus. The apostle is rhetorically highlighting that fact like we would use a yellow marker on a text. But then look at the last words of this incredible sentence. How much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, folks, this is a classic argument from the lesser to the greater. It's something like this. If you think God brought blessings through the Jews' sinful rejection of Jesus, wait until you see what happens when they're obedient to the gospel. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit in saying that because that's why they're being included in the kingdom of God. That's why... That full inclusion is referenced because the fact of the matter is they will believe in him. As we'll see especially next week 
When we look at verse 26, which declares all of Israel will be saved. More on that next Sunday. See, Paul has a vision that the Jewish and Gentile communities, so long at odds with each other, will ultimately have a good effect on saving, a saving effect on each other. The nations will come to Christ. The Jews will come to Christ. Thus the whole world will come to Christ. This passage, which at one level is of course about the Jewish historical rejection of Jesus, ends up being about God's saving righteousness to all the world and in all the world among all the peoples. It takes a Christian view of history to grasp that, though, doesn't it? And this view of history I'm speaking of now is not some, you know, um, esoteric, uh, academic kind of knowledge with no connection to the real daily world we live in. Far from it. This biblical optimism about redemptive history should affect and should color how we see our own lives and our own times and our own gospel ministries. And let me just say as a pastor in this year of our Lord, 2023, I don't think it does much. There's this incredible, gloomy pessimism, and frankly, faithless pessimism about our lives and our world today. I do understand quite well the hard challenges of our day. And honestly, I think I'm more realistic about those than many of the pessimists are. Social, political, environmental troubles of the last decade are as bad as I ever remember them being. And I, like some of you, lived through the year 1968. Moreover, the cultural degradation in the Western world is simply appalling. This is what we get when the grace and law of God are deinstitutionalized and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But brothers and sisters, I take the doctrine of God's common grace still very seriously. And I hope I take the New Testament teaching of redemptive grace in history more seriously than I take the nightly cable news. At least I try to. I I do at my best days. Just look at how Paul sees his own local ministry in a favorable light due to the overarching Christian view of history that he has. Look at verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. You see, sometimes in this chapter Paul's speaking about the great sovereign work of God in history and in sort of the headlines of history. At other times in this chapter, like this verse, he's talking about his own role in that larger work. And those things line up. Paul is, make, is, is, is intending to make Jews jealous, and Paul knows God will make Jews jealous. 
Paul is taking his personal ministerial cues from God's great plan to redeem the whole world. God will save every one of his elect. And what is more, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people that is, will at the end of this story, at the end of human history, they will be known as the Christ embracers, not the Christ erasers. And you see, Paul, knowing that, is content to play any role in that he can, which he describes as saving some. Beloved, we need preachers today who will not always speak in such modest, overly careful ways about the saving grace of God in Christ, but in bold, direct, and sweeping ways about the supreme transformative power of God's grace in this old world, even if in our personal ministries we just see some saved. And and don't we only see some saved. I mean, that's That's what Paul experienced. That's what every minister experiences. And see, we always have to have two levels operating at one time. We need the great larger story and promise of the advance of the kingdom of God on earth in our minds. That advance that continues until the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we have to have the local, particular, individual ministry to people in mind in light of that. That's the secret to contentment in local ministry, to believe in the ultimate victory of the gospel in every place. What does that old hymn say that we often sing? Content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. Romans 11 is an implicit promise That if we will be content to fill a little space, God will be glorified. A Christian view of history is that little things matter and little things lead to larger things. As Paul says in verses 15 and 16 here, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as a first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. If the Jews' initial rejection of Christ leads to God making peace with the Gentile nations of the world, what will their coming acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ mean? But, Paul says, life from the dead. That is a great spiritual Revival among the ancient Jewish people that then ushers in the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead to eternal life. Now, many commentators will argue that this phrase, life from the dead, means either great spiritual revival among the Jews or bodily resurrection from the dead. But I wonder why those are mutually exclusive. I mean, it definitely signals a spiritual awakening at least. Paul used similar language back in the sixth chapter of this book 
when he describes a Christian's life in this way, he says, do not present your members, uh, the members of your body, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God, listen, as those who've been brought from death to life. Conversion. So a great spiritual awakening among the Jews is clearly, it seems to me, the minimal expectation of this verse. But then comes the return of Christ, the ultimate deliverance from death to life. For if God brings in a great harvest of Jews who were brought in by the excellence of the Gentile testimony to Christ, who's left to be saved? Space aliens? When all the elect are brought in, Scripture teaches Christ will return. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is such a better promise to cling to than the fortunes and misfortunes of the modern state of Israel, which is, uh, one of the, the, uh, which is one of the highest, contains one of the highest number of self-professing atheists than any nation on earth. Did you know that? There's a lot of reasons to love and care for Israelis and to evangelize them. I think there's political and moral reasons to support the nation of Israel, uh, sort of geopolitically. But the idea that God is going to set up a millennial earthly kingdom in that place way undershoots, way underestimates what God has actually promised to us in his word. Again, our little obedience leads to such a big blessing in the world. Fulfilling what God promised to Abraham about blessing the whole world through his simple obedience. Back at the dawn of the covenant. So don't reduce the promise. The inclusion of the Gentiles leads to the inclusion of the Jews, which leads to the return of Christ. That's the spirit of Paul's references in verse 15 to a liturgical bread dough offering. You find that in Numbers 15 if you'd like to read about it. And holy roots leading to holy branches. It's this sense that in the covenant one thing leads to another and smaller things lead to larger things. And that last analogy about roots and branches, I think, puts a a new analogy in the apostle's mind. Because the whole relationship between Jew and Gentile and how they affect each other in the plan of world salvation is what the rest of our passage is about, verses 17 through 24. And it all centers on an analogy about olive trees, cultivated olive trees, that's the Jews, And the wild olive trees, that's the Gentiles. This is God's holy horticulture. The growth of the kingdom of God in history as God prunes and grafts his people for further kingdom growth. It begins with branches broken off of the original cultivated olive tree. Now, an olive tree is uh, an Old Testament metaphor for Israel, for the Jews. For an example, Jeremiah says of the Jews, 
The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. But then Jeremiah says something somewhat similar to what Paul says here today, that God, the the great pruner of his people, is going to break off spiritually dead branches from his olive tree of salvation. So again, the olive tree of true Israel, the Jews who believed in their Messiah, will be preserved, but structurally reduced as a people, like crepe myrtle trees in Charlotte in the winter when they're pruned back to almost a bare trunk. But that is being done to the olive tree so that a new branch, new olive branches, can be grafted on to the natural, original branches. These new wild branches, Gentile believers in Jesus, you and me are the wild branches. I love what Matthew Henry said of this. He said, it is the natural state of every one of us to be wild by nature. So we are indeed wild at heart. And that's not a good thing, despite what the recent book said. And then Henry adds this. He says, The Gentiles, the wild branches, through free grace, had been grafted into the cultivated branches to share their advantages. They ought to therefore beware of self-confidence and every kind of pride or ambition, lest, having only a dead faith and an empty profession, they should turn from God and forfeit their privilege. Look, while no elect person ever loses their salvation, plenty of people who think they are elect do. So in that sense, both Jew and Gentile can be broken off. As the apostle declares in verse 20, we too must stand in fear, a righteous fear of that possibility and not allow God's grace to make us self-satisfied and proud in ourselves and, 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 and blasé about righteousness. And Jesus taught this exact thing using a similar analogy. In John 15, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Again, holy horticulture. Now I'm going to say more about that next Sunday as we finish out the 11th chapter, but I want to leave you with a thought that I I think will help keep you and me, keep us from personal pride, but also give us confidence and rejoicing in God's mighty grace.
And we've been thinking about pruning and grafting olive trees, but let me, uh, let me tweak that analogy just a bit here. In the several places that Nancy and I go on vacation, in every case, there are roadside vegetable stands and family-owned local marts that have what we cannot find in Charlotte, apparently, vegetables and fruit raised locally in small farms and large gardens. These vegetables are not the picture-perfect specimens that you get at Harris Teeter. They're large or they're small or they're twisted or misshapen. Uh, they got nicks and smudges on them. Sometimes they've got dirt still clinging to them. Though they're not pretty, they are by far the best tasting vegetables and fruit we have each year. Now, our redemption, the Bible declares, is for the praise. This is its central purpose, its abiding purpose. Our redemption is for the praise of God's glorious grace. And grace works best with imperfection. In fact, the greater the imperfection, the greater the glory of God's grace. There is nothing more God-glorifying than seeing a wild heart become a cultivated heart by the work of God's sovereign grace. I was counseling a brother recently who was sharing about a a painful and distorting deficit from his childhood. And I think he could tell, as as I'm listening to it, that I'm, I'm sort of getting excited. And he was baffled by my response until I explained, oh, listen, this is going to be so great to see how God's grace works on this issue and brings blessing and opportunities to minister to others who may have similar deficits and been through it in their lives. You just watch. Now, I really mean that. Folk, I I, I know we have a, a stunningly beautiful church building, and we're all uh, dressed up nicely, especially those of us up front, you know, pretty clothes, pretty things. But we're not pretty or perfect. We are not the tasteless specimens of corporate agriculture. No, we are the fruit of redemption. We're what God's redemptive mission prizes the most, the gnarly and misshapen ones, raised in the rough and ready fields of a hard world with the dirt of personal sin still clinging to us. We were born wild at heart, but we now confess that something so wonderful is happening to us now. For we are being nourished by the true vine, Jesus Christ our Lord, and cultivated with infinite wisdom by the master gardener himself. And so, let all God's true produce, all the fruit of his redemption, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Our Lord, we do praise you 
And we admit that not understanding the way you work, we often want to deny or hide or pretend we don't even have our frailties, our, our, our imperfections, our besetting sins. So we thank you for magnifying your grace through us. And we thank you, as Paul himself did, for both your severity and your kindness, both for breaking off the unfruitful branches of the church, but pruning your children in ways that calls us to bear much fruit. And Lord, we bless you for the historical root that we are grafted onto, the faith of your ancient covenant people, the Jews. But we bless you even more for that one Jew whose life and teaching, whose death and resurrection, whose ascension and continuing intercession for us now is feeding us life itself, his life, Life that is true life by the Holy Spirit and through the grace of his glorious new covenant. And so we look forward to the great ingathering of your harvest at his return. Father, we're so blessed tonight to be sinners saved by grace. In Christ, our true vine, we pray together. Amen. If you would, please stand for the Lord's benediction. And so now, being connected by God himself to the true vine, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.